from Cobalt Headquarters in San Francisco. This is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my good friend and colleague, Jim Routh. Jim and I met when I was at Sigital running BSIM assessments, and I led a three-part BSIM for his team at Aetna. We also worked together on a white paper about software security controls for third-party vendors for the FSI SAC. Jim has held a number of impressive security leadership positions at several companies that no one has ever heard of, including Aetna, JP Morgan Chase, and American Express. When I think about Jim, the first thing that comes to my mind is the word maverick. Some of his most impactful contributions to the information security field have been by doing the exact opposite of what some might expect from an industry that has a reputation for being secretive. Jim has been a key player in the creation of some of the industry's most effective information sharing communities, the FSI SAC and the NHI SAC. He's also known for an uncommon approach to risk management take risk to manage risk. Jim, welcome to our podcast. Hey, Caroline. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. You know, I know you're in Massachusetts today, and I asked you as we were getting started if you were in Connecticut. Uh, the reason I asked is because the, all those years ago, uh, you know, Mike Ware and I thought, Mike Ware and Sammy and I thought, maybe it would be a good idea to do all three of these Aetna B-SIMs in the same week. And so we were in Denver one day, <laughs> We were in Atlanta the next, and we were in Hartford. And as we were physically going through that very rigorous travel schedule, we thought, maybe this wasn't the best way to do it. <laughs> um, but it. But it ended up okay. You know, we got the information we needed, and we made our yep. scorecards, uh, and everything seemed to work out. It did. So, Jim... You are, you know, one of the things I really like to ask folks on the podcast is how they got started in security and also to ask them a little bit about who they were before they got started in security. You are perhaps best known for being a technology leader. Uh, information security, of course, is a field that only exists because of the value that's created by and represented in technology. Uh, today, it might be fair to say that the majority of the world's wealth is manifested in ones and zeros. Uh, I personally was surprised that you actually studied history in college. Do you think that a formal degree in the liberal arts gives you any sort of edge amongst your peers today? And how has the way that you developed your mind as a young adult influenced the way that you think about your work? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not. I'm not sure it gives me an edge. It certainly uh, gives me a different, uh, slightly different perspective. Uh, and you know, for, from my perspective, anybody who develops critical thinking in whatever discipline of interest that they're uh, engaged with in college, um, that's actually more important than the actual uh, uh, curriculum that's that's chosen. Um, so there's so much emphasis today put on majors that high school students entering their freshman year are being asked, you know, what are you going to major in? And, and then when you give any answer, the response by many adults is, well, how that, how's that going to 
allow you to make a lot of money and, you know, be a professional. And it's really not fair because I don't think our minds are developed enough in high school to answer those questions effectively. I can tell you from my perspective, when I graduated high school, I went to college, I said to myself, I am going to be an entrepreneur. I am not going to work for a big major company. Uh, my father was in corporate America and I said, I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Every decision I made prior to becoming, and, and some cases after becoming a professional, was based on this premise that I'd never worked for a big company. The reality is I've spent 30 years working for big companies and have never worked for really a little company. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the facts are, I didn't know what I was talking about back then, <laughs> but that's what I was thinking. Uh, the point is I was passionate. Uh, I was passionate about history. I thought I could learn a lot about human behavior today if I studied human behavior historically. And in fact, uh, it does influence uh, my thinking in many ways. Uh, let's just take the number one threat vector today when cybersecurity uh, is phishing email because it takes a minute, 22 seconds for a phishing campaign to have success. It is the method of choice. Tech tactics have adjusted a little bit, but it's the method of choice today. Now, the conventional control that is um, shared by every authoritative source in cybersecurity is teach your end users in an enterprise to recognize the phishing email, and therefore uh, they become you know, the human firewall, right? I mean, we, we've done this and known this for a long time, right? If I think about that historically, I remember from my European history classes, the study of civilizations that uh, rose to the top and then failed. And inevitably, civilizations where you extract trust from the core culture of the civilization, that civilization will fail. And so I look at that and I say, okay, is email important to the enterprise? And I can tell you in my enterprise, email's really important. Like we'd be hard pressed to operate effectively without email. It's part of our core. I suspect there are other enterprises that have the same phenomena, that email is integrated into their cultural norms. That it's just part of the fabric of the organization. That being the case, then why are we spending time and money teaching people not to trust email? Because that's what user education awareness is all about for phishing. It's teaching them not to trust the primary vehicle that's used for exchanging information within an enterprise. This to me does not sound sustainable. I know it's conventional wisdom. I know that it's authoritative sources tell us this, but my historical background tells me it is not sustainable. And that prompted me a search for uh, a bunch of different alternatives, none of which are conventional. Uh, one of which is becoming a conventional control. It actually has become, if uh, you look at the NIST standard, uh, which is DMARC, is now a uh, uh, conventional control in the NIST framework, 853. Uh, and it, I guess it's a separate standard that's uh, uh, a, let's see, uh, do you remember what it is? Uh, I think it's. So there's uh, the. 860, I think. 
there's the NIST CSF. I'm 853 is always the one that I no 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 it's a specific one. I forget the number, but it's a specific one written for email and endorsing DMARC. So anyway, the point is that eventually unconventional controls will become conventional controls, and that's what happened here. My point is having that reference of history. Um, help, help ground me in making that uh, essential decision. And I have no regrets. Cool. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. You know, on the topic of how we train people, uh, I've heard you joke about outsourcing your security awareness and training functions to CBS and CSI Cyber. Uh, and I think for many security leaders today, it's actually quite convenient the data breaches are so prevalent in today's mainstream media. Um, so when your board of directors, when your executive peers and other folks who look to you to educate them on security happenings and current events, when they ask you about the latest incident, you know, they say, Jim, this is what I read about in the news. What am I supposed to think about it? How do you go about educating yourself about what happened and relating that information to your own security program and strategy. Sure, well let's start with, um, when I started in security about 20 years ago, we spent a lot of time and effort and money on security awareness and education because people weren't well uh, versed in the risks uh, associated with uh, different computing platforms uh, and the protection of uh, vital information. It just didn't happen. So. We literally were starting from ground zero saying, hey, you know, there's this thing, cybersecurity. Hey, you really need to worry about it. And, uh, and it's, it's kind of scary. And let's tell you what's really going on. And, you know, there's the like nation states and they could impact you. Right? And all of the education at the time was really designed to just create some awareness that there was a potential risk. And, um, and that's where we spent, you know, a lot of time, energy and, and money uh, and resources uh, to do that. today. It, it, the enterprise need is not for awareness that cybersecurity uh, is a thing <laughs> because you just have to pick up the newspaper or read an online article and to, it's reinforced. What's needed today is to teach specific users in the enterprise um, the techniques that they need to know to protect themselves. and the phenomena that we're all dealing with is that we use tools in our everyday life that treat us as if we're the consumer and we're not the consumer. We're the product and specifically information about us is the product. And we think as a consumer, but we have to act as a product manager determining what information to give up in which circumstance for what reward. And that's a very different way of thinking and that, and that has a set of techniques that cross channels that we have to be conscious of. So uh, instead of choosing technology componentry based on convenience alone, we have to understand the trade-off of if I want to give Amazon information about all of the things that I buy, small, little, and, uh, or, or medium and large, over the course of my lifetime, as a trade-off for the convenience 
of ordering that item overnight and getting it the next day, the Prime member, is that worth the trade-off? If I want to have a you know, Google Home device in my kitchen, is that worth the trade-off of giving Google access to the discussions we have around the dinner table? That's a trade-off. And so what we need today in security awareness and education is not a focus on, hey, cyber, it's a, there's a risk there. It's these are the techniques to use across these specific channels, and you're the decision maker as a consumer. Even within the enterprise, uh, you're still making decisions as a consumer, even as a professional. And so that's how we've evolved our program. Very cool. Jim, I want to, you know, I'm very interested in this technique-based approach, uh, and you've mm. just been sharing with us a little bit of your thoughts on sort of a technique-based approach for a user who's interacting with some piece of technology in their everyday life. Uh, I understand that you actually also use a technique-based approach to building a security team. I think um, my understanding is that, you know, even despite the major talent shortage that the information security industry is facing right now, I understand that you actually don't have a problem recruiting for your team. Uh, and this is to me very, very unusual. Uh, can you tell me about how you apply this technique-based approach to building a security team and, and any of the other different things that you do um, that help you to attract talent uh, in a situation where you know, the world is, um, has such a higher demand uh, than we have a supply of talented information security professionals. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And this is certainly in the unconventional category. I, I recognize that. But I don't think, uh, it's certainly not a secret, and I share it with everyone and anyone. So um, I'm, I'm very happy, you know, sharing a philosophy. And then I'll leave it up to your listeners to decide how much of that to uh, deploy. But I believe, you know, the three T's of cybersecurity, if we start with talent and tools and technique, um, that of the three, one is far more important than all of the other. Now, typically, people think that talent, because it's such a scarce resource, because it's so essential to resiliency for an enterprise program, Talent must be the number one. That's the obvious choice in terms of priority if we have to prioritize between those three. And my answer is no, because solve the talent problem, scarce resource that you have to attract and retain and develop in your organization, you have to use technique. So tools aren't the most important. Talent's not the most important. Technique is the most important. So if I can teach you technique that makes you more marketable as a professional, now marketability will measure by the number of choices, professional choices that you have. And so if I can increase the number of choices that you have as a professional and improve your marketability, which is in your best interest, by teaching you technique, that's a relationship that's not normal in the employer-employee relationship. It's actually unconventional. It's not traditional. When I 
started as a professional in corporate America, the corporation told me what I was going to learn. And they told me when I was going to learn it and how I was going to learn it. They said, take this training. You're going to learn these skills. You're going to apply it in this end. And we're going to promote you to this job. And there's your career path. And we were reliant as employees on the employer to tell us. Uh, that's you come totally full circle. Every individual has responsibility and accountability for their own professional development. No organization is responsible for that. The individual is responsible. For that. So what we do is we start when we interview people. <laughs> We, I ask the same questions. I say, give me the two skills or competencies that you wish to invest in in your next role. And it doesn't matter what the skills and competencies are, you decide. My job is to give them an opportunity to learn those skills and competencies. Because if they choose the skill or competency, they have a natural incentive to pursue that and achieve that. What I do is I try to get the hell out of the way and to enable them to learn what it is they want to learn by feeding them the techniques to enable them to apply those skills or competencies as a professional, which increases their choices as a professional and ultimately their marketability. And then by giving them more choice, one of the choices that they have is to stay and learn whatever else they want to learn that they choose. And so it's in their best interest and my best interest to continue that relationship. And if they get another opportunity that they think is overwhelmingly better for them at where they are in their stage of life and what they want to learn, God bless them. I'm happy for them. And I will always support them no matter what company they work for, always. So. From my standpoint, that's a sustainable relationship between an employee and an employer. And what I'm doing is recognizing that there are certain things that I really suck at as a leader. I suck at motivating other people. I really do. And I, I, I've studied leadership for decades. And this whole notion that a leader can motivate you, I think is fundamentally flawed. From my perspective, you motivate yourself. And my job is get out of the way and give you the ability to do what you want in terms of what you want to learn. And if I can do that halfway effectively, then I think I've made a contribution to you as an individual. But it's really you that's doing the motivation. It's not me. So uh, I don't know if that's helpful or not. I, I think it's fantastic. I think that you actually have a unique recognition of something about the human spirit, which is a desire to learn and that motivation comes from the inside. Um, I've, I've talked to so many hiring managers who look for someone who's done whatever job they're trying to hire for, for two years, for five years. And there's actually a fear that I've observed in some hiring managers in investing too much in, for example, a new college grad, because some folks will think, well, if I invest in them, then they're going to leave. Um, so I, I find your approach to be indeed unconventional and yet at the same time uh, sustainable. And I, I want to ask you about another thing. I heard you on another podcast talk about your first day on the job 
as interim CISO at American Express. And uh, you found out that the next day, you've got a presentation to the OCC. Uh, and my understanding is you reached out to a couple of your friends and mentors who helped you prepare uh, for your presentation. And, and not only did they, did they drive to your office and, and, and meet you an hour after you called them, but they also stayed with you in that office until 8 p.m. that evening, helping you to put together your presentation. And here's my, here's my unusual question for you. What was in it for them? Yeah, so it's a good question of just to set the context. That was my first job in security. I really didn't know what I was doing, um, but I thought I did. And a good buddy of mine uh, today, Mark Murkow, uh, worked at American Express, and he wrote a name down and a phone number, and he folded up a piece of paper and gave it to me, and he said, call this number when you get in over your head. And he's thinking it's going to be a matter of hours. I'm thinking it's going to be a matter of years, right? Uh, so I said, sure, I put it in my pocket, never thought of it. And then when I saw that I had that OCC meeting, it kind of dawned on me that that's why Glenn had put me in that role because he didn't want to do the meeting, right? So, okay, now, and now I realize how far over my head that I am. I made one phone call, Steve Katz, first CISO uh, ever. Steve brought with him two other CISOs, convinced them to drop everything they're doing that day and on moment's notice, come over and help some neophyte at American Express because they believed that resiliency for the industry was their obligation and responsibility, not exclusively to the enterprise that they're working for, the company that they're working for. It was broader than that. It was helping consumers across financial services be better protected uh, because any one firm that jeopardizes that consumer relation, it hurts everybody. So that was their mindset and part of their DNA and frankly, a foundational element of the FSI set. Um, and I practice that today and it's part of my DNA and you can't rip out or change it. It's why I share everything that I can with everyone because I want, frankly, the health today, I care about healthcare. I care about your child and you go to the doctor, I want to make sure that that information about you and your child's health is protected. And that is what helps me get up every day. That's, that's motivation. Now, in order to do that, it's, you know, healthcare is a huge ecosystem. But what I have to do is try to influence that ecosystem to try to be better at protecting information. There's a lot of opportunity there. And frankly, the industry as a whole is making progress. So, uh, so you know, so that's positive. Very, very cool. Jim, you mentioned that, you know, this information sharing and also this feeling of a broader responsibility beyond one's own organization is one of the foundational elements of the FSI SAC. I know that you're very heavily involved in both FSI SAC as well as NHI SAC, which my understanding is a bit of a newer organization. Can you share with our listeners any sort of key differences that you observe in terms of how financial services, information security folks, and healthcare information security folks, you know, how those folks with slightly different problems to solve, how they might look at the problem differently? What I can tell you is that my first perception of healthcare five years ago when I joined Aetna 
was that um, there was a limited diversification of threat actors and therefore threat actor tactics that healthcare had to worry about coming from the world of financial services. And to me, uh, you know, if I look at financial services and I look at the defense industry, uh, the defense industry have uh, heavily concentration, uh, uh, heavily con concentration of, uh, of uh, uh, nation-state-sponsored threat actors going after intellectual capital, um, and and that and that they're good as an industry at uh, protecting intellectual capital uh, based on that. If I look at you know the pharmaceutical segment of healthcare, they're really good at protecting uh, intellectual capital uh, as well. However, the assumption that I made was that throughout healthcare, that the diversity of threat actor that's in financial services, prim primarily to bank, um, is is not at all like any other industry sector. And as it turns out, <laughs> I was wrong. This happens um, happens frequently if you ask my wife. But when this happens, I realize I'm totally wrong because healthcare today has the same diversity of threat actors as financial services. We've got nation states, we've got highly sophisticated criminal syndicates, uh, we've got individual uh, uh, criminals, and we've got uh, hacktivists, uh, and every, everything in between. So healthcare doesn't have less diversity of threat actor that they deal with, they have more, or are actually the same as uh, financial services. What's different, financial services is a higher volume. So a bank, gets far more uh, volume of attacks in the different threat actors than uh, healthcare. And, and that may change too, uh, because we're seeing the volume of attacks in healthcare uh, increase uh, substantially, but so those are differences. Now, the one thing that I learned that I kind of suspected is that the attack surface in healthcare is exponentially greater than financial services. And an example is if I look at the crown jewels of information in a bank, it represents about 10% of all of the data elements in the bank. If I look at crown jewels in healthcare, specifically healthcare provider, and I include your, is it son or daughter? Do you have a son? Uh, the littlest is a boy, and I also have a three-year-old girl, so one of okay. each. One of each. So in, in terms of their information, and, and you know, protecting their information. Their information represents about 80% of the data in the healthcare provider that you use. Hmm. And what happens with that level of scale is you use the lowest common denominator control to put in place because it has to be put in place essentially enterprise-wide. And so that's what healthcare looks like today. In financial services, you can afford to put your best controls to protect 10% of the data, but the data concentration is so much higher, and there's so many more intermediaries that play in healthcare that past information on you know your children's health from one supplier to another to a payer to a provider and ultimately to you, and all along the line they're uh, using a social security number as a unique identifier. So the risk associated with the breadth of the attack surface in healthcare is far more significant. And fundamentally, the industry has to bring that risk down. 
It has to shrink the attack surface by eliminating the use of social security number as a unique identifier. And it's, it's coming, it's happening, and, and many organizations, my organization, just an example, we've eliminated over 10 billion instances of social security numbers in our core system uh, in the last three years. And we see the light at the end of the tunnel, another two years we think we're gonna have it all done. So it's possible, it's feasible, and it's absolutely essential. But you know, there's some fundamental differences between you know financial services and the healthcare. Just uh, looking at the attack surface uh, alone. That's fascinating. What a what a cool perspective to get sort of an inside view on. And Jim, I can't believe it, but we're almost out of time. Uh, I feel like in our conversation today, and also as I've gotten to know you over the years, it seems to me that you're an independent thinker. You know, you look out at the problems that there are to solve and you think about them your own way. And then you come up with a thesis and sometimes you find that you're right and sometimes you find that you need to adjust your thinking a little. For our listeners, I'm really curious to know, what do you think is next for the industry? And also what's next for you? Well, that's easy. Uh it's actually really easy. And uh, the reality is I owe my career to my wife, my security career uh, to my wife, because uh, she told me back, uh, I guess it was 2001, after moving uh, the whole family out to Minnesota for uh, a little over three years, three winters, it was after the third winter that my wife at dinner said, uh, look, I did die, I'm moving back east. Would you like to come? Uh, so she kind of put her foot down. That forced me to say, ah, geez, I got to scramble, find a job back in New York. Uh, fortunately, American Express uh, found a job for me uh, that wasn't in uh, IT, which is what I was in. It was actually in uh, essentially what we call today data science, but it was basically running behavioral models for all of the uh, domestic card campaigns uh, for American Express. And they merged that with the risk modeling team, uh, which are a bunch of econometricians, uh, which are basically you know, PhD and in statistics, uh, doing analytic work and model building. And uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but that re really laid the foundation for cybersecurity and overall security uh, today. And the reason for that is data science is driving security controls today in our environment, and it will be in your respective environments for your listeners tomorrow. Uh, and as an example, we have over 300 uh, machine learning models driving frontline security controls across nine platforms in production today. Many of the controls that we've designed to uh, eliminate uh, the use of passwords by consumers could not be deployed without models. And so our, we're building our data science team uh, and, uh, and we've been fortunate and we've had some really wonderful talent, but data science, is the future uh, for security. Uh, and so those of your listeners that uh, want to get in, embrace it, there's a book uh, called Algorithms to Live By. Read that book. If you love that book, you too can be a data scientist. If you hate that book, choose something else. <laughs> uh, pretty good way of determining whether uh, you're into it or not. But every cybersecurity professional, and, and I would argue every security professional, uh, needs to learn data science because that's how we design and deploy innovative controls. Uh, data science is at the foundation of that. 
Very cool. Well, I will be adding algorithms to live by to my audible reading list. Uh, Jim, thank you so, so much uh, on behalf of myself and also our listeners for taking the time to, to join us today uh, and to generously share uh, your experience and your thoughts with us. Caroline, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Jim Roth mentioned NHISAC and the book Algorithms to Live By. If you'd like to explore these or other resources, you can sign up for our Humans of InfoSec recap at resource.cobalt.io slash humansofinfosec. You can also find us on Twitter at humansofinfosec. And, as always, this podcast is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company. Thanks for listening.